come before you in prayer tonight. We want to thank and praise you for your goodness and your blessings in our lives. We ask once again that you would take this time that we've dedicated to the study of your word. And Lord, that you would enable us to simply do that, to open up the pages, to examine the words, to see uh, what the simple message of the text is, and yet, Lord, how they apply to our lives to this day. We ask for your grace to teach us and encourage us in our service for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you wouldn't, let's go to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. And uh, by God's grace, we're going to try to finish Galatians chapter 3 tonight. Uh, We've been at this a couple of weeks, but I'm just going to review a little bit. Let's go back to verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth. On a tree. Now we know that verse is connected, of course, to everything before it, and Paul is sternly rebuking the Galatians about their unwillingness to simply trust in Christ alone. Some people came in, they said, Faith isn't enough, you've got to keep the law. And of course, you can. Uh, read various cults and isms and schisms today that will do the same thing. I remember somebody handed me a book years ago, Steps to Christ. How many of you have ever seen that thing? Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. That book will not tell you how to get to Christ. Uh, that is a product of the Seventh-day Adventist cult, uh, the, rare, the writings of uh, Miss White, And in there she says, you get saved by faith in Jesus, but if you do not keep the law, he will take that salvation away from you. Now, that was very similar to something that was going on in the Galatian church. They said, listen, you get saved by believing in Jesus, but if you're really going to be saved, you got to become a Jew. And they began to tell them all of these things and bring them into the same practices and traditions uh, that were in the Jewish people. And, and here, Paul was summing up this entire thing. He's rebuked them. He said, O oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? He, uh, and and so, we, so we started there with two things that were going on. Bewitched, uh, most of the time we think of a stupid old television show from the 60s, if you watch old TV, uh, or uh, they think of witchcraft, and, and what it simply means is to take your attention, to consume your attention. And kiss, of course, if you've ever seen a magician, uh, actually the proper name is illusionist, uh, the reason why they're able to perform their illusions is because they have you looking over here while the trick is being performed over here. And... Uh, uh, what what they are doing is not magic. It's just simply a trick. It's it's hand moving faster or distracting you so you're not watching, and that happens a lot in religion. People get their eyes on other things. That's why sometimes, not not our church. By praise God, we've been very careful about that. Uh, we want the building to be as beautiful as we can be, but anything that's here that is symbolic, we want it to go straight back to the Bible, nothing else. 
Uh, that's why we don't have pictures of saints in the windows and, and, and all of these other things that some churches have. Is because we want your attention to be on Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's what was going on here. And so, he says here, all this law and all these traditions, Christ took them out of the way. He took the curse of the law upon Himself so that we could be free from the law to serve Christ. And then he goes in verse 14 that the blessings, uh, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is salvation. The Holy Spirit living in the body of the believer. And this is what Paul's referring to in Romans when he's talking about the temple of God uh, being our bodies. It's the simple fact that the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence. And when does that happen? The Bible tells us that happens, whoa, at the moment of salvation. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. If you want to study this thing out, uh, there's an awful lot made of in some churches of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Uh, we're going to get to that tonight, I hope. But uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you'll understand it biblically and in its true context, is simply the work of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. That's all it is. You say, well, why don't I speak in tongues? You don't need to. You see, they spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 2, proving the message of the apostles was from God. They spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 10, proving that the Gentiles, too, could receive the gospel. By the way, these are the keys of the kingdom that are spoken about in Matthew chapter 16. As Peter unlocked the door of salvation by faith, through the Spirit of God to the Jew on the day of Pentecost and to the Gentile in Acts chapter 10. Can I ask you a question? Does anybody else need to be saved other than Jews and Gentiles? Well, if you understand your Bible correctly, no. Because that's how the Jewish people divided the world. Jews, non-Jews. That was their understanding uh, and frankly, that's how God did it in the Old Testament, was it not? And so he's telling them that this promise can come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that they would receive the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth. Or addeth thereto. Now to Abram, Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. 
But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, here's Paul is using an example. He says, even in the realm of men, uh, I am sure there were dishonest lawyers in Paul's day, as there are dishonest people in our day. But uh, when you made an agreement, that agreement was a bond. You didn't change the agreement. And no one would go back after an agreement was made and carried halfway through or partially through. You can't go back and change the terms. And said, this is normal behavior between human beings. Someone who would involve themselves in this kind of shenanigans, this kind of uh, what we would call deceit and deception, would be a person of very poor character indeed. And Paul is just simply reminding the Galatians that the law came 430 years after the promise, and God is not... A dishonest lawyer, like John Calvin was. Oh, excuse me, that one slipped out. Um, Like so many human beings trying to understand God's law with human reasoning. Paul says, listen, it doesn't work that way. God made a promise before the law. And God is not changing The requirements, he is not changing the promise. God does not break his word. And he says here in verse 18, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. If you could get faith in God by keeping the law, then why did God make promises to Abraham? They wouldn't have needed to be made because the law would have solved the problem. And you see, here's what happens is we have a tendency to interpret and understand our Bible our way instead of God's way. Now, the Jewish people were caught up with this law, and and he's going to explain this uh, here in a few minutes, but... If you, it says, wherefore then serveth the law, verse 19. It was added because of transgressions. Now let's just stop there. And one of the reasons why I promote the King James Bible and challenge you to do it, uh, use that Bible, is because it is broken up into phrases. Uh, if you had a modern-day grammarian, they'd say, well, the Bible is full of run-on sentences. Well, yeah. But those run-on sentences are divided up into little phrases. And if you'll just follow the commas and follow these natural breaks in the thought, all of a sudden this thing will lay it out, almost diagram itself. How many of you know what I mean when you talk about diagramming a sentence? Other than Brother Franz, who's an English teacher. Um, How many remember diagramming sentences in school? Oh, that was so much fun. Now, I love diagramming sentences. Me and a couple of friends, we diagrammed the uh, preamble to the Constitution of the United States. Took the whole chalkboard. And and when the teacher came in, she's sitting there looking at this thing. and, and Well, you almost got it right and came over and changed one little thing. But um, And we were on the right track. 
And the Bible says, okay, wherefore then serveth the law? What is the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. So that's the first part. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So that's the second part. So let's talk about this first part. It was added because of transgressions. Here is the purpose of the law. Here is the service of the law. The law is to tell you the difference between right and wrong. I like the way one preacher put it. I wish I knew who he was. I give him credit. He said, we have two and a half million laws in the American federal jurisprudence, each one of them trying to help you keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's a pretty fair assessment. But you see, the law can't change character. You know what? The law has never modified behavior. How long has it been against the law to commit murder in these United States? Ever since there's been a United States. Did you know that murder was against the law in the colonies before that? And that every government uh, that we know about, known by man, has made it wrong to willingly take the life of another human being. Now, we're not talking about war. We're just talking about people committing murder, people willfully choosing to end another human being's life, whether it be because of hatred or greed or envy or, or any of a, a multitude of things. And by the way, it's always been against the law to accidentally. If I am driving my car and I accidentally kill someone, guess what? I'm in big trouble, am I not? It's not going to be the same as premeditated murder, but there are charges, there are uh, prison sentences that should be served, and if the law is administered properly, the law was added because of transgressions. So that aberrant is the word, Behavior can be noted and singled out. And by the way, what is the law for? It not only identifies the transgression, the sin, the breaking of the law, it punishes the breaking of the law. That's what the law is for. Why do we have so much problems in America today in our society? is because lawmakers think if they make a law, they're going to change behavior. That's why we had a mayor who said he was going to outlaw uh, non-sugar-free soda. How many of you remember that one? Well, the new mayor, he's trying it a different way. He's not gotten a lot of press, but he's at the same shenanigans. Uh, because, you know, the most evil thing that walks the streets of New York City is a can of Coca-Cola, right? Unless it's a can of Pepsi-Cola. Um, but the simple truth of the matter is, the law ought not have jurisdiction over such things. That's ridiculous. That's not the purpose of the law. The law cannot change your heart. 
I don't care how many laws they pass. If you want to go into McDonald's and order 15 double quarter pounders with cheese and and try to eat all of those, you're going to get sick. I don't care who you are. Unless you spread it over 20 or 30 years, well, then it might be okay. Amen? Uh, But the simple truth is the law was added because of transgression. And by the way, man has tried since the Code of Hammurabi to come up with a law that's one-tenth as good as the one that's in God's Word. People have criticized the law of God because it had regulations concerning slavery. This is an old thing. You can find it in many books. Criticism against the Bible and against God. Now, here's the answer. How long has there been slavery in mankind? Since one man was able to force himself, his control, over another man. Slavery is part of our sin nature. How long has there been people who cannot direct their own lives and get themselves into a mess in bondage financially? How long has that happened? Ever since there's been humans to mess up. If you follow the regulations in the Bible, it is a way out of slavery to eliminate that class of people. And if you were to judge yourself as someone who was just not good with money and not capable of handling these affairs, you could willingly become a permanent servant to a man who would pay you a salary, provide you a family, provide you clothing and food for the rest of your life in exchange for your service to him. You know what that's called? Employment insurance. No union has ever figured out how to do that without bankrupting the company from which they get the promises from. But this was something that God had ordained. And if you follow it out and study it out, you'll find out that there is no law, no set of regulations invented by any man that comes close to the laws of God that sets the standards as high as God does in the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You follow those 613 laws that are in there. And you will get no higher moral code than found in human history than is right there. Okay, so it was added because of transgressions. Then why else was it added? Till the seed should come to whom the promises were made. There's a time element here. God wasn't ready to fulfill the promises yet. And so, in the process of God's dealing with mankind, we have the promise being made. 430 years after, we have the law being given. About uh, 1,400, 1,500 years or so after the law was given, we have Jesus coming and bringing with Him the promise. You see, God's time clock is not... My time clock. 
our Bible ends with, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Those words were written almost 2,000 years ago. About 105 A.D., at the very latest date, probably 10 years or so before that. Well, he's coming quickly. It's only been two days, amen? A day is with the Lord a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. It hasn't been long. The Lord is coming quickly. We just don't know when. And so we have this time element that is here. And then there's a third thing that's put in here. It says, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Now, when we talk about this, it says it was ordained of angels, by angels, in the hand of a mediator. God has given us His Word by supernatural means. How did Moses get the Ten Commandments? God told him the second time to hew out a table of stone like the first one. He was to bring that table up there. And God took his finger and etched in the stone those Ten Commandments. But you know what? There was a whole lot more than Ten Commandments in the law. There's 613, the last count I heard, uh, in the Old Testament law. And uh, that's one of the first things I tell somebody who says, well, I'm going to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. Well, what are you going to do with the other 603? And I always get one of these. Uh, what are you talking about? Well, that's how many laws are in God's law. The Ten Commandment was the preamble. It was the covenant. It was the agreement. But all of the rest of them were just as important. If the priest didn't wash his feet before he entered the tabernacle, what was the penalty? Death? That sounds like a pretty serious law. If you weren't a priest and you tried to enter the tabernacle, what would happen? Same thing. God was using the law to teach the difference between right and wrong. He was using the law, and all of that time between Moses on Mount Sinai and Jesus at the resurrected tomb, to fill that time and to help us understand in some small way the importance of the laws and learning to approach God His way, not our way. Uh, The law was very succinct. It was very exact. There was not a lot of things. That's why some of these things are repeated over and over and over. God is not trying to be unnecessarily tedious, my friend. He is trying to show us that He is an exact God, that He's very careful about things, that He means what He says, He said what He meant, And there's not a lot of room for interpretation. Uh, uh, People say it all the time. Well, that's your interpretation. You know, I haven't heard that in a long time. 
And uh, I, I fear for the next person that tries to pull that one on me because I've just got so much stuff built up here that I could deluge them in reasons why that is such a foolish statement. It's not your interpretation. If you will spend some time in this book, you'll find out there's only one interpretation. There's not a lot of wiggle room. Because God was very exacting here. And he says that this was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, who is that mediator? The Bible tells us in Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But here, this mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. There is one God. And Jesus is God, by the way. That's what he's implying here. And this mediator between God and man was whom? How about Moses? Was he not the one that went directly to God and got God's law and brought it to the children of Israel? And when the children of Israel made the golden calf and sinned against God, who was it that prayed to God that God would not destroy the entire nation as he said he would do? It was Moses, wasn't it? You see... God has given us His Word by supernatural means. Later, it would be an angel that appeared to the children of Israel at the Oak of Weeping or the Oak of Bosham there in the land of Israel. And He would prophesy doom to them because they refused to be obedient in driving the Canaanites out of the land. Moses gave God's Word. To the children of Israel. It says, is the law then against the promises of God? Does what Moses did counteract or supersede the promises that were made to Moses? Well, there was a reason why the Jewish people had gotten this thought. And and we need to read on a little bit here. He says... God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Now, you pick up any commentary, and when you get to Genesis, or Galatians chapter 3 here, they're going to tell you, well, this is a rather difficult passage. But how difficult has this been so far? It's not very difficult when you break it up and just let it say what it says. The the law is not against the promises of God. Here's what the Jewish people had forgotten, uh, that God had made these promises to Abraham and that there could not be a law that would give righteousness. But verse 22 says, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise of faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. How many of you remember before you got saved saying, it can't be that simple just to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that was the promise that was made to Abraham. And 
it was so simple that the Jewish people who had been trying to keep 613 laws for centuries, millennia at this point, 1,500 or so years, could not let go of the law. But it says the Scriptures, the law here, hath concluded all under sin. The law, if you will let it do its work, it will prove one thing, that you can't be as good as God is. And the law proves that you can't go back. Uh, I've used this example in the, in the past. If I were to jump down off this pulpit and pull out some kind of weapon and steal Brother Franz's wallet. Now, that would be really dumb in front of all these people. Now, wouldn't it? And I get out to the front door and I said, he doesn't have that much money. This was really dumb. I'm going to come back and give him his wallet back. Am I still a thief? Yes, I am. If I said, now listen, Franz, I want to make this thing right. I'm going to give you a thousand bucks. Now you know I'm joking. But uh, he could take the thousand dollars and still dial 911 and have me arrested, couldn't he? In fact, the only way I could fix it was get one of those non-existent time machines and go back in time and undo what I did before. You've heard about time machine. It's $50,000 uh, for the time machine. And if you will lock uh, the door and sit in the time machine and wait about 30 seconds, you will be about 30 seconds in the future from when you entered the time machine. Since I am a human being, I cannot transcend time. But Jesus could. That's why he could be made a curse for me, even though I didn't exist yet. Amen? And this is what Paul is teaching. You see, the law convicts me, but the promise sets me free. And it says... Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith, which should be afterwards, which should afterwards be revealed. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. Before Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead, the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before faith came, we are kept under the law. You had to live in the law. And what happened if you broke the law? You're punished according to the law. If you broke the Sabbath, the penalty was death. You took the name of the Lord uh, in vain. What was the penalty for cursing God? Death. These were very serious offenses. And God set these rules. It says, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Faith did not appear in the law. Well, where does it come from? Well, it came from Abraham who was before the law. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Every Jewish person memorized that verse. 
They knew it. But they were so busy keeping the law and putting their attention on themselves and what they were doing that they missed the point that the law had to be kept by faith. See, you could keep every outward appearance of the law. This is what Paul said. Read the book of Philippians. He was lost. In fact, he had to count that as loss. He had to throw that away so that he could accept Jesus Christ by faith. So here we have the reason why the Jewish people were so blind to this thing called faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been shut up unto faith. They had been cut off from faith because their eyes was on the law, not on the promises of God. But we have verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye were all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ... Then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, uh, not always does the end of the chapter meet the end of the idea. It, and it goes on talking about this, is, this chapter break was put in a good place right here. And so it says that the law was our schoolmaster. How many of you have ever learned something very difficult to do? I mean, speak a foreign language, uh, learn a musical instrument. And I don't mean just tink, 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 tink. I mean, learn how to play. Uh, a skill that, uh, that uh, is, uh, is recognized as a skill. I mean, we have lots of people that can do things. But how many of you remember the learning curve? Trying to learn how to cook. Trying to learn how to teach. How to build things. I'll tell you what. It doesn't come naturally. I remember being so frustrated with my saxophone that I just grabbed a hold of it like this and something started moving and it scared me. If I bust my instrument in half, I'll never get another one. And I said, i got to take that frustration instead of putting it out on the instrument, put it out through the instrument. And, and hours and hours and hours and hours of practice. But you know, practice doesn't solve problems. I remember my teacher, he said, all you did was practice the mistake. He says, now you know the mistake perfectly. He says, now you're going to go home and you're going to practice it the right way. And he wrote in my book, practice perfect makes perfect, not practice. Well, 
That's what a schoolmaster is. How many of you can remember one terrible, tyrannical teacher who actually made you learn something? You know something? Those were your greatest teachers, were they not? Well, that, that's the law. The law is your schoolmaster. And what is that schoolmaster going to teach you? It says the schoolmaster is going to bring you to Christ. Uh, now, there's an awful lot of people make of this schoolmaster saying that he was a hired slave that would take the student to the tutor. And uh, the word schoolmaster just simply means a master of school. Uh, we usually, I mean, even to this day, sometimes the principal is referred to if somebody's waxing poetic as the schoolmaster because he's in charge of the learning process at the school. The law, if properly studied and understood, will drive you to your knees as a broken, worthless, helpless sinner. And all God's people said, that's what the law was supposed to, it's your schoolmaster. You see, there is no other place to go than to Christ. The law offers no other alternatives. Only Jesus fulfilled every part of the law. That's why He was made a curse for us, not because He was guilty, but because He was the only one in history that is not judged guilty by the law. And He suffered in our place. If I understand God's law, it will not take me to myself and what I can do. It will bring me on my knees at the foot of the cross. Because that's where Jesus paid the price for my sins. School was never intended to be a fun thing. Do you got that, guys? School is supposed to be a learning process. And just like you exercise your muscles, if you exercise your brain, it's going to hurt. And that's okay. I mean, I hope that on these Thursday night studies that we're exercising your mind a little bit. And we're making you stretch and making you think about things. I don't believe in simplifying the message to the point where everybody gets it because you have to leave so much of it out to do that that it's no longer God's message. We want you to get the point here. And you've got to think and you've got to put engage here. But the law was our schoolmaster. It says after faith has come, we don't need the schoolmaster anymore. There comes a point. I think of our surgeons. You have to go through an awful lot before they let you start cutting on people. And you know what? I'm glad about that. How about you? Uh, I'm glad that they don't let them. I'll just practice on a few and see what happens. No. Uh, they have specific things and they train them and then you work with someone else and, and you watch them and then they let you sew up after all the surgery is done. And finally, after all of this training, you get to do your first 
surgery. And they watch you like a hawk and they film every movement you make and they tell you everything that you did wrong. You could easily give up and say, I could never do this. I take my hat off to people who are willing to go through all of that. But once you finish, you're no longer under the schoolmaster. You're supposed to help people with your surgery. Amen? And Paul is saying, now you've got to understand something. You didn't get saved by the law. This is back early in chapter 3. You're not going to make things better by the law, by the things you do, because you got saved by the Spirit of God. You're going to continue and grow in Christ by the Spirit of God. You've got to understand that Jesus died on the cross so that He could remove the penalty of the law. If you understand what the law is doing and its purpose is the schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. And then in our last few moments here, we get this, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, get this. Don't just read the first half of that verse or you'll become uh, what is known as a universalist, that God saves everybody. That's not what it says. It says, ye are all the children of God, how? By faith in Christ Jesus. If you don't have faith in Christ Jesus, you're not a child of God. If we go back a few verses, it says that the promise of faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe in verse 22. Uh, contrary to what the Calvinist tries to teach, you must personally make a faith transaction with God in order to receive salvation. Can we say amen to that? I've met people who knew all the things that the Bible says, but I, I said, have you ever prayed and asked God to save you? No. I said, why not? And Well, um, I said, would you be willing to pray today? And sometimes it, it's shocking. People say, oh, no, I'm not ready yet. I'm not going to force you. If you're not ready yet, you, you're not saved. And you need to understand that. Because you've got to get lost before you can get saved. That's what the law is for. It's to judge you lost. It's to judge you without hope, without remedy, so that you will come to Jesus Christ. But once you come to Jesus Christ... You don't go back to the same thing that condemned you. You live in the faith of Jesus Christ. Amen? And it talks about here, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. And, and this verse here is, is one of those verses that people stumble at and they try to, um, to, to try to figure out what that means. Now, we have a baptistry right here in the floor. We are a Baptist church. Uh, that name comes from the baptistry because we baptize people. Is that how you put on Jesus Christ? With the waters of the baptistry? No, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The only baptism you can elect to have is what's in the tank right there. 
So what's being spoken of in this verse? It's very simple. When you get baptized in this tank, what are you doing? You are publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. Amen? And with the Open Door Bible Baptist Church. Okay, I'm, I'm going to train you on that amen thing here. But that's what baptism does. So how do I put on Christ? Well, let's look at the next verse, because the Bible is its own commentary. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female. Now, I, I want to tell you something. There are all those differences in this room tonight. And I'm glad. So what is this talking about? This is talking about the work that is done by the Spirit of God at the moment of salvation. You see, it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or a man. God saves you the same way. The same work is done. It doesn't matter whether you're bond whether you're a slave, whether someone controls your actions, or whether you are free. That was a big deal in Paul's day. There was a whole class of people in the Roman Empire that were slaves. They had no control over their um, uh, daily routine, over what they would do, over their future. They had no control over that. The Bible says when you get saved, God treats the slave exactly the same way he does the citizen. You know what that's a promise of? There's no favoritism in heaven. And he said it's the same with the Jew and the Gentile. That this physical heredity to Abraham... Hey, that's a promise that God made to Abraham and his seed. But he also made a promise to Abraham and those that were by faith. And Paul deals with this thing in other places in our New Testament that just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham does not get you into heaven. It does not get you salvation. God never promised salvation to the Jewish people or a proper side of eternity simply because they were born into a Jewish family. They had to make choices to abide by God's law when they were under the law. But now faith has come. And now that Jew had to make the same decision that a Gentile did. You know, pride is a terrible thing. You ever met somebody who thought they were better than other people just because they liked their own reflection in the mirror better than anyone else's? You ever met anybody like that? You have. It's never a pleasant thing, is it? Because they think they're better than you are. And in America, we have ways of dealing with this thing. We have laws against discrimination and things, and they keep taking it further and further and further until where now sin has its own set of equal rights. It's amazing. But let me tell you something. That moment you put faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, His burial, 
his resurrection, you are put into Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. And the next verse says the same thing here. It says, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If I belong to Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 2, he's not ashamed to call me, call you, brethren. You imagine that? God calls those that are saved his brethren. That's an amazing thing. But why does he do that? Because he's brought us into his family. That's what makes us the seed of Abraham and the heir of the promises. Does that mean I'm going to get to live in the land of Israel and change my name and put a steen on the end of it and say I'm Jewish now? No. But it means when I get to heaven, I'm going to have the same rights and privileges that every other person has in heaven. I will partake of the same salvation. It's by faith. Back to Galatians chapter 2. Who does the faith belong to? Where does it come from? It's of Jesus Christ. And if I get my eyes on anything else, I'm going to be like the Galatians. I'm going to be distracted. I'm going to be taking my eyes off of Jesus Christ and putting it somewhere else. And that's what was happening. And Paul used the term bewitched. He used the term foolish, which in the Bible is the harshest condemnation there is. It says that he had says to his brother, thou fool is in danger of hellfire. It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so when Paul was calling them foolish, it was no light thing. He says, you're in danger of eternity here, my friend. Because if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that you keep your salvation by what you do, keeping the law, where ultimately then is your faith? It is in you. And that kind of faith will not get you one step closer to heaven. It's got to be faith in Jesus Christ and His work because He was the one that was made a curse. He was the one that paid the price for my sins. He is the one that will put me into Himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. You say, how does that happen? I don't know. It just says it does, so I believe it. I'll let God take care of that part. How about you? You say, what about the universal church? There's no such thing as a universal church. A church cannot be universal. It's got to be local. Because a church is a body. There's no such thing as a universal body. A body works best when all of its parts are in the same place, attached to each other, and working in conjunction with each other. I mean, that's nice, isn't it? Amen? Uh, Anything else could be quite dangerous for your longevity. This is what Paul's trying to teach here. We can be 
a recipient of the promises that God made to Abraham through faith. But let me tell you something. If you don't stop at the schoolmaster first and get an education, this is part of the problem with this new Christianity that is out there. You get saved from nothing and to nothing. Everything just keeps going on as it always has. The same dress, the same music, the same friends, the same bars. Uh, in fact, you can even go to church at a bar today if you find the right place. There are several of them around where, where they rent the bar on Sunday morning. So people feel comfortable learning about Jesus. If you can feel comfortable being taught that you cannot save yourself and you are in danger of an eternal hell because of your sin, there's something wrong with you. In fact, there's something wrong with the teacher. There's something wrong with all of that. I mean, there's nothing right about it. How many of you remember how uncomfortable you had to get before you were willing to trust Jesus as your Savior? That was the schoolmaster. They're not always the kindest people. But you sure are glad when you've learned a lesson. And don't need the superintendent watching over your shoulder. That's how the Christian is supposed to live. By faith in the blessings that Jesus Christ has promised through faith. And all God's people said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in prayer tonight. We ask that you would do your work in our hearts, that you would encourage us. Lord, maybe we have someone here that is just struggling with learning from the schoolmaster. Lord, that they would submit to their lessons and learn them quickly, that they may come to Jesus and get Bible salvation. Lord, we pray for those that are struggling with trying to live for God their own way instead of God's way. Lord, that they would just let go and let you do your work. Lord, Christianity certainly is not passive. But we've got to get ourselves out of the equation. And I ask, Lord, that we would learn our lesson. Learn it well. That we could operate in grace and faith, rather than having to be under the schoolmaster. Teach us, Lord. In your name we pray. And we'll keep our heads bowed for just a moment.